Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of Sepad Pod. I'm Simon Maybon, and today I'm joined by Dr. Mohammed Kalantari. Mohammed is the co-director of the Center for Islamic and West Asian Studies at the Department of Politics and International Relations at Royal Holloway, the University of London. His research interests lie in the international relations of the Middle East, with a particular focus on the interaction of regional doctrine, elite ideology, and political Islam. He is the author of the absolutely wonderful The Clergy and the Modern Middle East, Shia Political Activism in Iran, Iraq, and Lebanon. And I'm delighted that he's here today to talk with us about that and much more. Mohammed, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Simon. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. It's a pleasure. The pleasure is, is absolutely ours, Mohammed. So, as always with these discussions, can you tell us a little bit, just to start, by uh, by telling us how did you get interested in in the the scholarly engagement of the Middle East, please? Okay, the good thing about you know having a book just coming out and then uh, answering these sort of questions is that I I, I did a sort of like a couple of pages prepaid to to my uh, uh, to my book, so that that I I could advertise it now. <laughs> Uh, so those Excellent. who want to know better about my background, uh, they, they could go and read that couple of pages. But uh, to basically briefly answer that question is, uh, you know, I was always coming from uh, an Iranian uh, conservative family, uh, always had interest in understanding society around me. I traveled a lot extensively to uh, places across the Middle East, Arab countries such as Saudi Arabia, uh, for different reasons, uh, UAE, uh, many other uh, countries. So it was always interesting uh, to me to understand the dynamism between different sects within Islam and the broader politics involved in that. Obviously, academically, I joined uh, the university to study uh, political Shiism quite quite late, I mean, uh, relatively speaking, back and in 2011. And slightly accidentally, uh, in a roundabout way, perhaps, if I can uh, bring that up. Yes, yes. You know, as I said, I was a prolific reader of uh, studies going on and talking about Shiism specifically. Uh, but uh, I've always studied them uh, as a hobby, really, and to kind of to see whether I could self-identify myself uh, among those uh, lines in, in in those books or arguments or analysis. Uh, but uh, at some point, I decided to uh, give up my studies in in business, so I gave up PhD in business. And I come up with, I mean, I want to go to, not to too much detail, with, with a proposal, which really at the heart of that proposal was a personal question. Uh, and I wanted to uh, find out an answer. And this is something that I, these days, I, 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 I advise my, my students, my uh, postgrad and PhD students to, whenever they are asking about the research question, I always advise them to see whether they have 
a kind of a personal query uh, so they can frame it in uh, uh, as I did myself uh, as a research question worthy of the research for a PhD project. And this is really what had happened to me. I really personally, back in 2011, wanted to know whether there is a strategic difference between the so-called uh, Shi'i uh, quietism and Shi'i activism when it comes to ulama, to clerical elites. Mm-hmm. I was uh, dealing with them in my personal life and have come up with many personal questions uh, vis-a-vis that broader question. Hence, I started doing that within, you know, uh, the premises of a PhD project. Fantastic. And I, I really like the personal dimension to the book, and we'll, we'll get onto that in a little bit. Um, the, there was a, a strange moment in, in earlier conversations where you, you, you told me that you studied at Lancaster and that our paths had almost yeah. crossed, albeit um, in, in different <laughs> faculties. So it's a, uh, an interesting geographical and intellectual journey that you've been on as well. Yeah, and I like Lancaster and the, 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 the town, the university campus really uh, dearly in a, in, a, in a sense because uh, that was the first home outside Iran uh, for me. So when I started my master, my, my, my master so, uh, I entered Lancaster as this kind of first place. So all, all, always uh, <laughs> remember, remember those days and the campus uh, and, uh, you know, all the good memories Excellent. of those days. Excellent. Well, I'm pleased to hear. But, Mohamed, let's, let's talk a little bit about this personal journey then. You, you pointed out that, that this, this interest in, in the Shia ulama, the Shia clergy, was something that you were, you were exploring sort of in your own time, um, not, not as the, your main line of scholarly inquiry. So where did that where did that interest come from? Where why were you interested in in doing that when others were perhaps reading about history or about art or music? Why why the Shia clergy? What what was it that that really intrigued you there? Okay, that's a good question, and I ask uh, that question. I mean, I've been asking that question from myself for for decades now, but. Uh, Generally, if I want to come up with an answer, although I'm not coming from a clerical family, uh, so I don't have any 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 personal ties in sense of familial ties. But through my you know uh, family, because my father is a traditional uh, Bazari in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a sense, and there's always been throughout the history this connection between the merchants. Uh, the Bazaris and and the ulama in mm. in Shia society, especially uh, in Iran. Uh, traditionally, Shia, at least before 1979, Shia clerics always been proud of being independent of the state yeah. in, in, in countries, and and they were uh, for because they didn't they never had the support of the state at least uh, for the majority of their, their, their history, there's always been this great ties with the merchant followers. Uh, so to answer your question, where that personal ties coming from, 
uh, of personal dimension. My father was one of those those merchants who visited many ulamas in their house to give uh, his religious alms to them. Uh, so as a child, I was just accompanying him uh, in many, 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 many of those meetings, sitting down, like kind of listening to their stories or their commentaries about what's going on in, in the street or in the history. So I think the interest started from them, not to mention that I become quite close to many of their uh, children uh, at the time, whom now some of them become uh, like kind of uh, caloric themselves uh, as we speak. So, mm -hmm. uh, especially in Bom and Neja. So I've always been uh, coming from that uh, part of the society in Iran. I've always been uh, sort of involved with what's going on in the clerical uh, milia in Iran. Uh, so so tell us a little bit about that relationship, if that's okay, then please, Mohammed, between the bazaris and the clerics. Why was there such a such a close relationship between these two groups of people who, who at a prima facie level at least, might be dramatically different from one another? Okay, I... Uh, Without going too much into detail, because I don't, uh, but uh, I think for the purpose of promoting the book, that that might be good, uh, because as a, a big chunk of my one of my chapters, which deals with the history yeah. of uh, clerical political activism, uh, tries to shed some light about these uh, relationships. And a bit of disclaimer: I am not. The one, I mean, the only one talking about this relationship. I mean, in the literature, academic literature, there is a, a, a plethora of studies trying to, at least historically, to establish these links between the, the, the bazaar, the market, and uh, the Shi ecology. I think historically, uh, while the Sunni colleagues have more or less the support of uh, the state. So, uh, I mean, in a quiet, uh, non-analytical, let's say, or quite, quite, quite broad sense, uh, because the state was uh, majority of the history, the Sunni state uh, throughout the Islamic world. So the clerics, the Sunni clerics were quite reliant on, on the state. But for the for the Shi clerics, that that source of uh, support and power, in a, in a sense, for a, a very long period of their history, wasn't available. Right. So the next uh, like kind of uh, option for them would be to seek the support from the society, and this is something that at least the traditional Shia clerics, even today, are really proud of that. Their power, their authority, uh, comes from the support of their followings. And obviously, among those followings are many businessmen, let's say. So, and uh, based on Shi jurisprudence, uh, concepts such as you know, zakat or more, uh, interestingly for, for Shias, uh, the Homs, the fifth uh, uh, alm, mm -hmm. which every, every person has to like, kind of uh, pay, uh, as you know, uh, I mean, I don't want to go 
too much into technicalities of this. So after a while, uh, these religious arms coming from businessmen uh, found its way to uh, Olama to basically support religious studies, to support, uh, you know, other Olamas and to, in a sense, uh, promote Shiza and to protect the community. So this this link has established or did establish uh, maybe a century ago, more than a century, millennia ago, maybe. <laughs> but but then, then 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 we have Safavid era. Uh, that dynamics changed a little bit after Safavid. We have some anti-clerical movement by uh, in Iran at least by another. Obviously the 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 Najafi ulama or the Iraqi ulama, for the most of the the, the history, been all under the uh, modern history, but under the Ottoman tutelage. So that's different story, but uh, which obviously shows how they didn't have the support of the Istanbul. Let's say uh, instead they 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 had to seek uh, the support of uh, wealthy people. Uh, among among the follow, follow, uh, followers, among the Shi followers, and there are many incidents in the history of uh, Shia clerics or Shi histories, uh, tobacco revolt, or uh, which is a quite relatively recent uh, in nineteenth century, or uh, and even Islamic revolution. I mean, the the the, the, the role of Bazaaris or uh, businessmen in Tehran, or traditional businessmen in Tehran, in Bazaar of Tehran, uh, is in supporting Ayatollahs during the revolution is undeniable. And as I said, there there are many interesting uh, studies covering that uh, or the nature of that relationship. That's really helpful, Mohammed. Thank you, because I think the, this. There's a couple of things going on. One, the, the, the point you make about the, the experience of, of the clerical establishment in Iran prior to the revolution was not a positive one. It was, it was deeply discriminatory and, and, and quite unpleasant, prompting clerics to, to seek support from, from perhaps, unsurpri- perhaps somewhat surprising um, sources like the bazaaris as you say but conceptually as well i think this is really important in setting the scene for what follows with regard to your argument and the broader environment in which clerics are operating so let's let's having set the scene a little bit and those types of relationships let's let's hear from you just what the main point of the book is what is it that you're trying to do in the book um, what's the main argument and, and what's the main claim that you're putting forward, please? Okay, just just a, 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 a note about uh, how you kind of summarize my, my, my point. I don't think uh, it's something exceptional about Shia calories. Uh They they had to do that, obviously, like any other uh, minority group. Sure. Yeah, of course, of course. They, 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 they try to, to, to survive, really. So if fate helps them, uh, it's good. If not, 
basically they are they are looking for alternatives. Yeah. Uh, and this this is what has happened in in, in the history of uh, Xi and the religious leader. Uh, but within the majority, suddenly uh, Islam, uh, because they've always been and still are in in minority. Uh, about the, the the setting of the book, I think that uh, so the the main question, as I uh, mentioned at the start of my my, my uh, talk is whether there is a, a strategic difference, let's say, between, or fundamental difference between Shia activism and quietism. You know, uh, perhaps better than any of us, that uh, the, the literature in, in, in the West has tried, in my opinion, because of uh, uh, lazy intellectual uh, or intellectualism, uh, try to use this uh, sort of essentialist uh, view to mm. differentiate or categorize uh, Shia clerics into two camps. First camp, they are activists, such as Ayatollah Khomeini, the leader of uh, the Islamic Revolution. The others are quietists. They don't... Uh, they are quietists, in it. And, and this is really, uh, and I did some sort of literature review uh, in the introductory chapter of my book as well. Uh, it is really hard to distinguish what between these two, even after reading all of those, those uh, studies carefully. So that, so my hunch feeling at the start of the project uh, knew that this couldn't be right. Uh, but then I started this uh, research and I tried to, in following that the answer, uh, try to hear from the Ayatollahs themselves. Uh, so this is what, uh, using my, my previous relationship or acquaintances, uh, which obviously in a, in a quite snowball effect, uh, uh, you know, expanded, which I ended up interviewing 60 odd, uh, calorics, uh, 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 high ranking calorics in Iran, Iraq, and Lebanon. I started to, I mean, but I remember every single of my interview started with this question, whether your highness, I don't know what, I mean, in, was the term I used, but <laughs> it was quite, quite, <laughs> quite, quite, quite respectful, uh, uh, respectfully addressing him, asking whether he believes uh, there is this division between uh, calories, yeah. Shia calories, whether we have two camps when it comes to politics. And almost, I mean, I, my, 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 there, there were some interviewers who answered me, yes, of course, there are there are two camps. There's just uh, those who believe in that, those who uh, doesn't believe in that, so on and so forth. But generally, I mean, I documented all all, all, all this in, in shaping my my overarching argument. But I ended up uh, arguing that no, there isn't 
strategic difference. We don't have two different camps among Kellerics when it comes to politics. Because as a matter of fact, however you or one defines politics, Kellerics have one uh, kind of uh, uh, responsibility and duty in their understanding. And that is to protect, uh, I mean, they call it protect Citadel of Islam yeah. or Hefzat al-Islam. I mean, to protect the community. Uh, and for that end, they would do anything. And it uh, doesn't matter if you think somebody is apolitical for 50, the first 50 years of his life uh, and uh, all of a sudden overnight becomes quiet and active and, you know, arm himself to go and fight the infidels, so to speak. But this, this, this has been the trend. Uh, so it is really hard for those who are arguing that we have quietness and activists among, among Ayatollahs or Shia Kellerics uh, to basically prove their point because there are too many evidences uh, indicating the other, otherwise, I mean, indicating that we have some, some Shia leaders who were kind of quiet or relatively quiet uh, about what was going on at, let's say, state level, but they started to become, I mean, to issue a fatwa of jihad uh, because they perceived uh, that uh, the, the core of Shiism or the community is being threatened by external factors. And that perception is, I think, a key term here as well. I mean, in, in my argument, because theoretically, I try to apply political opportunity structure mm -hmm. theory. And obviously, as you know, we have objective political opportunity structure, which refers to the context and the reality on the ground, what's going on. Uh, but uh, what I try to kind of conceptualized throughout my, my book when I was arguing, uh, addressing that question, was to come up with this, uh, the role of perception in understanding uh, that opportunity structure at a given time or given circumstances. So this is the term which I use, I mean, the perceived polit political opportunity structure which obviously in social uh, movement uh, literature, you, you could see that. Uh, there, there are, again, many ideas about different cases applying this perceived because the bottom line is the opportunity is not an opportunity unless you, you perceive it. Yeah, and sure. I, I argue that uh, many times that we kind of label someone anti-political might be uh, the result of that someone didn't perceive the opportunity. So in retrospect, we understand and we analyze, okay, uh, uh, that there were an opportunity and he didn't seize it, seize it, so he is apolitical. But we have to put ourselves in his shoes at the time and to see whether really he sees that opportunity 
or he just missed it and hence didn't act. Uh, so this is the like kind of in a, in a, in a really short uh, way the distillment of my argument, the the notion of perceived opportunity mm-hmm. structure, uh, the main duty and responsibilities which the Shia political elite has set for, you know, from day one, from 1941, uh, the start of the major occupation, so to speak, for themselves, which is to protect Citadel of Islam. And to that end, of course, they become, if, if it is necessary, they become active in politics. If it's not, they try to, and if they believe that they, I mean, not engaging in, in, in politics would have that uh, overarching goal or duty, then they stay out of politics. Sure. So, conceptually, just, just elaborate briefly, Mohammed, please. Why this distinction between the quietest and the activist matters? I mean, you're, I, I completely agree that that there's a way of framing this to say that it's about um, putting Islam front and center, and all these other factors determine the type of actions that one takes, contingent on opportunity structures, perceived opportunity structures, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But why does the existing literature tend to group clerics in this binary dichotomy? What is it that that literature is trying to do? And why do you need to push back against it, do you think? Uh, that's an interesting question again. I think, let's not forget, m- the majority of this literature, maybe all of this literature, uh, that produced in the aftermath of the Islamic revolution in Iran. Right, yeah. Okay. Uh, so, so, so that was like a turning point because up until then, uh, the majority—I mean, those who were interested in Shia, if they had any—they uh, kind of categorized Shiaism as this, uh, as this uh, quite pacifistic and uh, not interested in politics uh, within uh, the broader Islamic world. Okay, so. What happened in Iran in February 1979 and its aftermath, I think, kind of uh, sent this wave, this shocking wave, to not only the policy circles, but also academics, uh, that what really is going on here, uh, what has happened uh, to our previous understanding of uh, Shia calories, uh, so on and so forth. So I think that to understand why this or countering or crit- criticizing this dichotomy matters, we definitely need to look back to where did it start in our, our understanding. And obviously when, when, when we look at it, hence many would argue, I among them, uh, that many of policy decisions has been made uh, based on these two, uh, I mean, like kind of dichotomy, uh, so, uh, especially when we consider the invasion of Iraq in 2003 and added to, uh, you know, that, uh, to our understanding of Iran 1979. And in my book, I talk about 
33 day uh, war of Hezbollah as well to kind of uh, try to link that uh, those three cases to each other. But if we think uh, we have some ayatollahs who are who are who don't don't want to have anything to do with politics, if we think that we have some ayatollahs who are hardcore. Uh, manipulative uh, politicians. I think that uh, makes our understanding and observation of this uh, very important uh, region quite blurry. And at the end, I argue that that dichotomization prevents us or those who are in uh, especially policy cycles, uh, to engage with man- many of these uh, religious elites, whom, although they are losing their, 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 their grip among uh, some of uh, these communities, or at least relatively speaking, but they are still one of the most important political agencies in, in, in this region, especially at the heart of the Middle East when we are basically thinking about Persian Gulf and, you know, uh, Iran, uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, Turkey, or, I mean, Lebanon, Syria. I think uh, there are statistics showing that the majority of uh, uh, population at the heart of Middle East is, uh, a Shi population, not 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 implying that they are all following an Ayatollah, but mm. what I'm trying to say is understanding uh, Ayatollahs and how they, they they behave, how they become active, uh, and uh, you know engage in in politics and you know society. It's really crucial to understanding this region. Uh, for for anyone who is interested uh, in the, in this region from for different reasons, uh, and all I'm trying to argue in my book is this dichotomy uh, doesn't. I mean, the argument doesn't hold water. So uh, the sooner we get rid of that, that essential uh, essentialist lazy thinking or categorization. Uh, the, the better because we will have a much better clear understanding of uh, what's going on. Sure. You've, you've touched on a couple of interesting points there, Mohammed, And in particular, I want to pick up on this spatial component. And mm-hmm. in the book, you, you focus not only on Iran um, post-79, but also Iraq post-2003. <laughs> and Lebanon post-2006. So there's a temporal component and a spatial component. Just talk to us a little bit about why um, why space matters, why context matters, why time matters. And given all the different opportunities, uh, all the different possibilities you had, why did you focus on these three, please? Okay, uh I think the answer to why question uh, is somehow personal as well. 
So okay. I, 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 a little bit, I mean, uh, so it goes back to King Abdullah of Jordan, uh, that uh, term that he came oh, up yes. with back in 2004, she crescent. So I really wanted, obviously, uh, so he was referring to Syria as well, but uh, because my focus is 12er Shia, uh, so Syria was uh, out from day one. And to be to be honest, uh, when I started this research, Syria was going through uh, the civil war. So I couldn't go there yeah. and interview. I, could, I, I really didn't have any, anyone to interview there. But uh, Iraq, Iran, and Lebanon as these main uh, centers of Shia scholarship, Shia religious scholarship, was obviously no-brainer to pick them. Uh, obviously, I wanted to uh, challenge that concept of Shi harassment as well. So uh, I, I, I chose these three cases. I might talk about this for my position, which is quite controversial later on, uh, when we uh, bring Shiism and uh, Persian identity. But when uh, we are talking about these three cases, talking about Iran, uh, Iraq, and Lebanon. Uh, and I mentioned that in my, my uh, book, the preface of my book, that uh, throughout my, my uh, study, uh, whenever I deal with Shia allergy, I, I, I treat them as a 1,100-year-old person. <laughs> uh, so, 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 as if their collective experiences yeah. in different spaces and different uh, schools and different uh, geographies helped each other to develop. So, consider that you travel from one place to and leave to other place, and then uh, after a while you move to the third place. So, you could accumulate in a sense an experience, a lived experience uh, to, for, for yourself, which has components of many stuff, including uh, the geographies or the spaces that you, you, you've been visiting, living in. Uh, so that, that is why I mainly focus on these three centers of Shizem, if I may call them, because there was, there, there is a very long documented track of Shia clerical scholarship and activities in, uh, let's start with Najaf and then Jabal Ahmed in uh, Lebanon, and then obviously uh, Isfahan, Qom, uh, and uh, Karbala, many other cities who were known or are known even today as Shi cities. Obviously, I could bring uh, Shias of the Persian Gulf uh, in, 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 into the discussion, but for the case or cases studies which I chose, I was quite confident that I can build up or I can argue my case based on those three incidents in these three countries. Okay. And how much do those incidents themselves matter? Because these are these are seismic incidents for 
for three particular states and for, for the region more broadly. So I, I guess there's a there's a question about the interplay between uh, domestic and, and regional currents and then the 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 scope for for clergy to operate in society and beyond. So I guess maybe it's a levels of analysis question here, but but how important is that the the sort of the broader regional domestic contexts for clergy to operate? Uh, pretty much, and back to what I said about this uh, eleven hundred year old uh, person, let's say, which I consider as clergy. So. They are interconnected, and these incidents, uh, not least, added to the experience of uh, experiences of the following uh, clerics. So let me give you an example. Many would ask that. I mean, many would argue that Ayatollah Sistani of 2003 isn't a political. Is was a quietist uh, Ayatollah because look, it didn't establish. An Islamic government, or whatever that means, uh, in in Iraq, as Ayatollah Khomeini did in 1979. All I'm trying to to say here is Ayatollah Sistani of 2003 was 30 something years older than Ayatollah Khomeini. I mean, experience met, metaphorically. So, uh, yeah. so he had the experience of Ayatollahs in Iraq in the aftermath of uh, you know. Uh, the revolution and all those, uh, you know, issues, the war, all, all those stuff. Just, just looking at this one, one, one factor, one dimension, kind of understand why Ayatollah Sistani didn't uh, basically uh, try uh, to establish something like Islamic Republic of Iran in Iraq. Not to mention. And that might be another uh, note uh, regarding the space, regarding you know these incidents. Not to mention that Ayatollah Sistani is an Iranian-born Ayatollah uh, who is living in Najaf, as you know, which is a predominantly a Shi'i Arab country, and yeah. all those uh, historical uh, tensions. So, uh, so I, I, as the titles of my chapters go, because the the, the middle chapters of the book are uh, named after the the cases. So I I, I kind of tried to using these uh, cases with with such magnitude in in history of the region. I try to kind of delineate that uh, connection between the history or within the history of Ayatollah and between uh, the Ayatollahs themselves, how they could learn from each other and uh, as a, let's say, class or social stratification, they come up with a new role for themselves. So the 1979, I call it, or the subtitle goes as the birth of the Mushtaid statesman. And 2000 Iraq, a pragmatic Shia Mujahid, and Lebanon 2006, the network Shia Mujahid, which obviously 
denotes the fact that how Iranian and Iraqi Shias try to influence the course of uh, the war uh, using their connections, not only regionally, but in that specific case of Hezbollah war with the interview which I uh, cite uh, from, we connect direction uh, connection with uh, a direct connection with with uh, U.S. administration of so bringing that international aspect to something communal uh, within Shia uh, world. Sure. And I think it's really fascinating how you do all of that and how you trace the evolution and that that sense of 1100 years worth of learning and reflection and evolution, I think is really, really interesting and really important. I, I think, uh, sorry, Mohammed, please go on. I, I mean, on that 1100 uh, term, uh, I, I, I think I explained it in, in, in my book, Olama or Shia Ayatollahs, but basically calling themselves general deputy of the last infallible imam, the 12th imam. Uh, so the belief goes that the 12th Shia imam went to uh, occultation back in 1940, 940, uh, and hence the ulama as a class uh, deputized, I mean, in, in its simplest way, defining that. So Ayatollah Khamenei, the current supreme leader of Iran, this book in which is published in Farsi and it's called 250 year old person uh, explaining the the pre-occultation history of uh, Shi imams Mm -hmm. and framing that 250 years in through which 12 imams lived in in the Islamic history as one person one body Hence, my 1100 uh, history, uh, 1100-year history of Ayatollah as general deputy of Imam has something to do with that connotation, that the, the title of that book. Uh, so I, I have to uh, disclaim that uh, <laughs> uh, here as well. Well, that disclaimer point has been made well. Um, <laughs> so, good, good job, uh, Mohammed. I, I have to ask, and this will be my penultimate question. I have to ask, though, you've been pointing to it a couple of times now. This sense of you as as an Iranian looking at what is um, something that that occurs in in your book, at least two two thirds of the substantive analysis chapters are based outside of Iran, um, which leads to some some different ethnic, linguistic, cultural differences. You alluded to it when you talked about positionality. So I wonder if you can just tell us a little bit about overcoming those challenges, please. Uh, I mean, I, honestly, I didn't have many challenges because as much as I am Iranian, I love uh, Arabs, <laughs> you know, uh, and uh, not only Arabs, perhaps every other human being. But I, I, I feel quite confident, com- comfortable when I am, you know, visiting 
Lebanon or Iraq or Saudi Arabia or UAE. I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't see any sort of conventional conflict dealing with them. And I, and I, and I think many of uh, those interviews with which I did. I mean, there were some which didn't go unplanned, or I had to like kind of uh, write stories uh, behind a couple of those interviews. But uh, the majority of interviews, I mean, I mean, because they were quite professional, and uh, so it, it it went really good. Especially when I I was interviewing, uh, let's say. Uh, the Arab caloric in Iraq, mm-hmm. Najaf, Karbala, or in, in, in Beirut. Uh, so, uh, obviously, there was this language barrier. I understand Arabic uh, and speak a little bit Arabic, but my Arabic instruction, I mean, I've been instructed in classical Arabic, not, not uh, the 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 daily Arabic which they speak uh, these days. In sure. Israel. So uh, sometimes I, I have to like kind of have a friend accompanying me just to check with him whether I understood the guy correctly or not, uh, that sort of stuff. But uh, all in all, I didn't have any, 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 any problems. If anything, I, I enjoyed. I mean, since my book, I... Before COVID, at least I traveled to Lebanon, perhaps more than uh, I traveled to Iran. Okay, to visit friends uh, over there. So I personally didn't have any 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 issue. Unless I mean, apart from a couple of times, which they weren't in 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 Iraq or Lebanon. I mean. Mainly, even in, 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 I mean, one of them was in Iraq, which you know the interviewee didn't want to continue the questions because uh, he didn't feel comfortable. And then after he didn't feel comfortable, I didn't feel comfortable, so I had to leave. Mm-hmm. But apart from that, I mean, it 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 was uh, one of the most enjoyable period in my my life, and I'm basically trying to go back to the field. Well, I think that that comes out in the book. It's written in such an engaging and persuasive manner. Um, those of, of, of you who haven't read it, I really urge you to get hold of a copy. You'll be hooked very, very quickly um, by by Muhammad's style of writing. He will very quick, quickly capture your attention and your imagination. So that that enthusiasm that you speak of really does come through on the page, Muhammad. It really does. And oh, thank you, thank you. My my final question is is slightly speculative, and it's it's asking you to reflect on on where things go from here. And you've got your your three big events of of nineteen seventy nine, two thousand and three, two thousand and six. If you were to be picking additional events, what what would they be? Would it be twenty eleven? Would it be the Arab uprisings? Would it be um, Tishreen uh, protests in Iraq? Would would it be the the, the Lebanon protests of of twenty nineteen? What would you do moving forward, and what lessons do you think have have come out of the the following years since the two thousand and six war? Uh, I think uh, Tishreen example and 
uh, you know, protests in, in, in Iraq are really interesting. From what I understand, the, the calories even in, in, in Rome, definitely in Najaf, are trying to address uh, many of those demands. So it was really hard for somebody like me to contemplate why. I mean, not hard in, in I mean, shocking to, to contemplate and, and to contemplate why Shias in the Shi city of Najaf, uh, like kind of burning down the, yeah. the, uh, the Iranian consulate. Mm-hmm. I mean, I understand why they did it. Uh, and, you know, I've, I've written about this, and uh, many, many, many of the scholars have written about this, many of them she. But what I can tell is that uh, kind of pushed some ulama, some, some clerics, to revisit their position. I mean, what is, what, 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 what is their role? And to go back again, to the drawing room, <laughs> so to speak, to think about, okay, in this day and age, in post-2018, uh, how they could protect the citadel of Shiza. Uh, and uh, I think there are new waves or new, uh, I think a better word would be new uh, fronts forming Inside, inside Ulama, and obviously the good thing which I appreciate about about Shi clerical uh, media is they are, I mean, as rigid as they may seem from from outside. Inside these scholarly circles, they they debate about this stuff, mm-hmm. and uh, they 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 basically come up with. Uh, ideas, some of them obviously are, uh, you know, end up pub- uh, published even by, you know, many, many, many publisher houses in, you know, Iran or Iraq or in, 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 in Lebanon. Uh, although uh, they might not find their way to, to the English speaking world or academia, which obviously one, one, one of the Activities that I'm, I've, I've been trying to do as, you know, co-director of CBAT at Royal Holloway is to bring those voices to the fore. I mean, to to to, to this center of uh, uh, debate in London or anywhere. I mean, so they could they could engage in uh, a broader discussion and try to come up with their own solution or responses to what what what's going on sure. inside the community and the broader Middle East and, uh, you know, uh, Shia communities outside uh, Middle East. So they are doing that, but if I want to pick one, one, one period, I think I skipped 2011 Arab Spring, uh, just for the sake of <laughs> argument, and, uh, you know, uh, pick Ashreen and 2000. And Iraqi uh, protest, yeah, which yeah. is ongoing. I think that's a really interesting um, one to, to choose. And of course, it raises questions that we don't have time to go into now, but hopefully we can pick up again in the future about belonging, about the the very nature of, of Iraqiness, 
about the tension between the sect and faith and sect and the state and and geography and the seats of, of clerical influence and importance and all these different things that are starting to come out in the in the Tishreen protests. Yes. So yes. really interesting. Mohammed, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. And the book is is magnificent. I really, really enjoyed reading through that. And I urge everyone to try and get hold of a copy. It really is is an important uh, read. Thank you very much, Simon. Thank you for your support. Thank uh, all, all for whatever you've done uh, at CEPAT, which I proudly uh, consider myself as a fellow and affiliate and looking forward for many, many discussions and debates and analysis and reports and papers and books. Excellent. Well, me too, Mohammed. Thank you so much. It really has been an absolute pleasure. Take care. Thank you. A huge thank you to Mohammed for his time just now. You can find him on Twitter at MRKalantari. That's at MRKalantari. So do give him a follow. Also check out his wonderful new book. It really is worth your time. And I've really enjoyed chatting with him about it. As always, a huge thank you for, to you for listening. And please do like, comment, share, subscribe and do all the usual things. And until next time. A huge thank you to Mohammed for his time just now. You can find him on Twitter at MRKalantari. That's at MRKalantari. So do give him a follow. Also check out his wonderful new book. It really is worth your time. And I've really enjoyed chatting with him about it. As always, a huge thank you for, to you for listening. And please do like, comment, share, subscribe and do all the usual things. And until next time. A huge thank you to Mohammed for his time just now. You can find him on Twitter at MRKalantari. That's at MRKalantari. So do give him a follow. Also check out his wonderful new book. It really is worth your time. And I've really enjoyed chatting with him about it. As always, a huge thank you for, to you for listening. And please do like, comment, share, subscribe and do all the usual things. And until next time. A huge thank you to Mohammed for his time just now. You can find him on Twitter at MRKalantari. That's at MRKalantari. So do give him a follow. Also check out his wonderful new book. It really is worth your time. And I've really enjoyed chatting with him about it. As always, a huge thank you for, to you for listening. And please do like, comment, share, subscribe and do all the usual things. And until next time. A huge thank you to Mohammed for his time just now. You can find him on Twitter at MRKalantari. That's at MRKalantari. So do give him a follow. Also check out his wonderful new book. It really is worth your time. And I've really enjoyed chatting with him about it. As always, a huge thank you for, to you for listening. And please do like, comment, share, subscribe and do all the usual things. And until next time. A huge thank you to Mohammed for his time just now. You can find him on Twitter at MRKalantari. That's at MRKalantari. So do give him a follow. Also check out his wonderful new book. It really is worth your time. And I've really enjoyed chatting with him about it. As always, a huge thank you for, to you for listening. And please do like, comment, share, subscribe and do all the usual things. And until next time.
A huge thank you to Mohammed for his time just now. You can find him on Twitter at MRKalantari. That's at MRKalantari. So do give him a follow. Also check out his wonderful new book. It really is worth your time. And I've really enjoyed chatting with him about it. As always, a huge thank you for, to you for listening. And please do like, comment, share, subscribe, and do all the usual things. And until next time. A huge thank you to Mohammed for his time just now. You can find him on Twitter at MRKalantari. That's at MRKalantari. So do give him a follow. Also check out his wonderful new book. It really is worth your time. And I've really enjoyed chatting with him about it. As always, a huge thank you for, to you for listening. And please do like, comment, share, subscribe, and do all the usual things. And until next time. A huge thank you to Mohammed for his time just now. You can find him on Twitter at MRKalantari. That's at MRKalantari. So do give him a follow. Also check out his wonderful new book. It really is worth your time. And I've really enjoyed chatting with him about it. As always, a huge thank you for, to you for listening. And please do like, comment, share, subscribe, and do all the usual things. And until next time. A huge thank you to Mohammed for his time just now. You can find him on Twitter at MRKalantari. That's at MRKalantari. So do give him a follow. Also check out his wonderful new book. It really is worth your time. And I've really enjoyed chatting with him about it. As always, a huge thank you for, to you for listening. And please do like, comment, share, subscribe, and do all the usual things. And until next time. A huge thank you to Mohammed for his time just now. You can find him on Twitter at MRKalantari. That's at MRKalantari. So do give him a follow. Also check out his wonderful new book. It really is worth your time. And I've really enjoyed chatting with him about it. As always, a huge thank you for, to you for listening. And please do like, comment, share, subscribe, and do all the usual things.